Welcome to Marketing Futures, a new series of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with SAP. We'll be discussing the changing face of the retail landscape and bringing you the latest news and insights from leading brand and industry experts. In this first episode, we're focusing on the future of retail and direct-to-consumer. The pandemic has brought about an accelerated change in so many aspects of our lives, and today's retail and consumer industries are being transformed before our eyes. According to the latest eMarketers Roundup of D2C marketing trends sponsored by SAP, US D2C e-commerce sales grew 45.4% last year. Brands are putting greater emphasis on their owned and operated online channels, the competitive advantage data creates, and the importance of customer experience. My name is Graham Barrett, and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce our expert panel from the world of fashion. I'm joined by Fiona Walter, Director of Marketing and Product UK at Stitch Fix, Julie Austin, Marketing and Digital Director at Bravissimo, and Robin Barrett-Wilson, Industry Executive Advisor, Fashion at SAP. Fiona, maybe I can start with you. For those of our listeners who don't know, could you just give us a brief overview of Stitch Fix? Yeah, absolutely. So Stitchfix was founded uh, more than 10 years ago now in the US originally, and we also now have a presence in the UK. And globally, we have 4.2 million active customers and an annual revenue of 2 billion. And essentially what we are in our core is an online personal styling service that blends data science with human stylists. So in essence, basically how it works is a customer would go online, fill in a quick style quiz, tell us about their preferences in terms of their style, their budget, their size, and so on. And then they can also include a request note as well. And then for £10 or $20, depending on which market you're in, we match them with a personal stylist who handpicks five items of clothing and sends it to the the customer's house where they can try everything on before they buy. And then they only keep what they love and pay for what they love. And then they just send back the rest. So that's it in its core. And it's Mm -hmm. essentially democratized personal stylists and made them a lot more accessible and affordable. What trends have you noticed during the pandemic and how has this affected your brand? Yeah, we have noticed a few trends um, that arose during the pandemic. The first is that overall, we just saw an acceleration of pre-existing trends. And so as with many other digital industries, we've seen a growth of e-commerce penetration, which you also alluded to in your intro. Um, So people have just started to shift to make the shift online. And what we've seen as we're coming out of that is that they're not going back. And so by virtue of being a 100% digital business, we have benefited from that shift. And a lot of more people have tried us who otherwise wouldn't have potentially considered us before. The second trend that we have seen, particularly from a marketing perspective, is a growing appetite for more authentic marketing content. So what we have done in response to that is really lean into more homespun photography created not only by our stylists, but also our customers as well. And we found that not only the production costs lower, but actually those kinds of assets are resonating a lot more with our customers, whether that's in organic social or even in our emails. And what we've seen as byproducts too, that seeing that kind of low fidelity content, it encourages more customers in an organic social space to generate their own and share their own head to toe looks. And so that perpetuates a natural virality and word of mouth. And then the third piece that we have seen really accelerated during the pandemic, it it was there before, it existed before, but it's really accelerated, is this idea that we have more conscious consumption out there and consumers are making much more considered purchase decisions, regardless of kind of what what it is they're purchasing. 
So for us, that's actually, again, been quite beneficial for our business model naturally aligns with a more considered way of buying clothes. So because our customers receive all their items at home and they can try before they buy, they can try on these individual items with their whole wardrobe and make sure that things actually will mix and match. And they actually are going to get a lot of wares out of the new piece of clothing rather than it being, you know, that, that item that we all have in our wardrobes, which just seems too discounted to pass up or too flashy and wonderful that we bought on an impulse and that is still living in our in the back of our wardrobe with the tag still on. And when we, when we survey our customers about sustainability, how important it is to them and what it actually means to them when it comes to buying clothes, this is actually one of the top things that they say that for them, it's about buying smarter. So buying fewer things, but that are going to give them a lot more wares. Jules, I'll come to you because it'd be great to get your take on these issues now. Obviously, Stitch Fix, a D2C brand, but Bravismo is traditionally operated from physical uh, stores. Being a lingerie retailer, how have you had to adapt the business over the past 18 months? Yeah, do you know what? I was nodding vigorously to everything (laughs) Fiona just said then. The trends actually that we've seen in the last, even though we've come at a really different springboard in terms of background to Stitch Fix, they're really similar trends that we're seeing too. So Bravissimo is 26 years old. You know, we have 26 physical shops in the UK. We have one in Soho and then we have our 28th, which is our online shop. And actually, we've come from a place where we started off as mail order. We then navigated to retail and then we've become online sort of in the last 10 years. But those trends are really similar, even though the business model and the the B2B, B2C and completely online is very different. We have really seen in the last 12 months in particular that e-coms now become a good 50% of our retail sales, taking outside the fact when our shops were shut, obviously. And the biggest challenge for us has really been that we build our entire business on shared experience. And that really comes from a service perspective in terms of fitting. So we don't just sell bras, we fit and support our customers to feel amazing. And it's really about how they feel and trying to think about how we do that in a world where we can actually physically be with our customers was really quite challenging in terms of where we pivoted. But Ultimately, the experience that they want is still the same. They want interaction. They want contact. They want expertise. They want the, you know, 96 sizes that we provide. All we had to change really was the medium that we did it through. So our biggest sort of pivot has been virtual fitting and finding a way to service the same things, really staying true to our purpose still, but just doing it in a virtual world. And actually, There's been a benefit of some of the ways that the landscape has changed in the last 12 months. No one ever thought QR codes would be something that we'd all be using again. And actually kind of where we've tried in the past to do things virtually, we've tried to do things on Zoom before and customer sessions on Zoom. Actually, just the the understanding of it as a tech or the interaction with virtual was something that people didn't have an appetite for, but it's a forced pivot, but one actually our customers have really responded to and been able to, we don't use tape measures when we fit our customers. We do it by eye and by questions and by intuitive expertise. And actually that's been really beneficial for us. And now we've gone from only being an in-store estate of fitting and we have a customer services team who can do it over the phone to now we have a virtual fitting experience that's done through kind of Zoom or Teams. And we've done over 30,000 of those in the last 12 months. We've fitted women in 20 countries. So 
really kind of responding to what our customers were telling us, what also importantly, what we were always there for, always really staying true to our purpose, not trying to find a new area of space, but really being there for them during this time has been a huge benefit and one that will actually take us forward as well. I think that's a brilliant point you make about pivoting. You know, that's something we're all kind of familiar with. And I'm sure at Stitch Fix and Bravissimo, you've definitely had to do that. Robin, could I bring you in and just maybe talk from a general sense of the industry here? How do brands who have maybe hundreds of stores worldwide, how do they cope when the world goes into lockdown? Yeah, the interesting thing about fashion is, is that, you know, the government decided who was essential and who wasn't when it came to retail, right? And so here we were, these fashion brands, and I always consider myself one since I was in the industry at one point, but what were we going to do? Canceled orders, canceled production. I mean, all these things happened. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a couple of months, hey, let's shop. We don't have much to do. We've, We've played all the board games and all those types of things. So let's go back to shopping. And so this whole idea of convenience, my mother is even shopping online and very comfortable with it. You know, that very much came into play. And then really taking a look at what was going online and saying, okay, I still have these physical stores. And as they start to open up, how do I bring these two together? They don't necessarily work all by themselves, although like a stitch fix, that's what that's the the model. However, as Fiona already pointed out, you know, the stylists are on the phone or they're having Zoom calls and those types of things. And so really that pivot, that idea of let's think outside the box. Let's really get to a point where we are thinking about convenience and transparency and really giving that service and a different experience that truly can go from here to in the future. And I think there are are lots of both Jules and Fiona pointed out some great things that have been done. There are also some other great brands, you know, Ralph Lauren during Christmas time, you could sit on your sofa and go through the Beverly Hills store. There was a lot of brands out there who said, let's bring our customers in and get their ideas and put them on social media, which has typically been very much a lockdown space. Brands have locked that down to represent themselves. And so what they did is they really created a community. And by that transparency and having that community, the brand awareness and the brand commitment came through with the customer. And so that's really what we've seen with the brands that we talk to day in and day out. And, you know, very similar to what Jules and Fiona just talked about. So I guess this is about communication with customers, isn't it? And reevaluating online channels. How, How have brands managed to do that? Yeah, there was a really big, oh gosh, we better figure out what everybody's doing because looking at data a year ago is no longer relevant, right? So that understanding of what happened last week now becomes what's relevant this week. And so really what brands have done is done a great job of pulling the lens back and say, okay, how am I acquiring a customer? How am I retaining a customer? How am I getting them to re-engage with me? And then looking at the technology to support, which of course is great, but then putting the customer at the center of everything. So really asking questions, a lot of surveys, understanding that they need to give transparency to the customer. They really need to give control to the customer. The customer wants control when things are being delivered, right? Do I need it in an hour? Do I need it tomorrow? Or can I wait? And then really being consistent with the message. I think the whole idea of first, we started out with messages about health and well-being, so that people were comfortable. But then it was really an opportunity to reintroduce a brand to somebody who maybe had been buying for a while. But now let's reintroduce you to Stitch Fix. You may have been buying for me for a while. Let me tell you about some of the things that we've been doing. And that 
may get that customer to really tell another customer and tell another customer. And then the other piece of the puzzle is being sure that you have the product where it needs to be, when it needs to be bought, because that really does support the customer experience. And if that's not in place, then the customer's not happy. And so the, the experience kind of falls out. Fiona, we were talking about kind of meaningful relationships with our customers. What, what does that actually mean? And how, how do you create that? So two thoughts on this. I think one is that at its core, we've built Stitchix as a service. So similar to what Jules was saying earlier, we really think about providing a service to customers and inherently Stitchix is a relationship founded sort of business, not a transaction based business in the sense that with every sort of request, customers can write a note to their stylists and we see customers will share things which are personal and sometimes so intimate and the kinds of things that you would never offer up to a, a shop assistant in the store. Everything from the basics of, oh, I, I need some clothes to go on my honeymoon with my husband to be all the way to just coming out of a divorce and I've not been dating for two decades and I don't know where to start and what to wear and can you please help me? Or I've just given birth to a baby and I, I don't recognize my body. Like, please help me feel confident again. Like what Jules was saying earlier, really kind of at the essence of our service, our styles are there to help our customers look and feel their best selves and sort of go about their daily lives with confidence. So it really is kind of sort of a one-to-one stylist to customer relationship at the core of the service. And we see that customers that stay with us for years actually can end up developing almost friendships with stylists who might be working with them and styling them over the course of several years in this lovely old-fashioned pen pal relationship form. So that's kind of very much in the essence of what we've been doing. But similar to what Robin was saying earlier about how building a community around a brand can encourage kind of an outsized loyalty and affiliation with that brand. We have been looking to create spaces for our really engaged customers to share. And something we've done recently in the UK as a bit of a pilot, but it's really promising. And so now we're thinking about how do we scale this and open up to more people is a forum that allows customers to connect with customers. And so far what we've seen is that, and the intention was that it was meant to be a positive space, which was about style inspiration and the people who've signed up to it are so lovely and engaged and enthusiastic and they'll post their own sort of style outfits or they'll kind of post items that they've received and say, oh, I, I like this orange top, but I wouldn't know sort of how to style it. And people will pile on and give each other advice. And even though it's kind of a sort of an indirect association with the brand, if you like, we're actually not super sort of involved and it's not overly engineered from our standpoint, it does help to build that sense of emotional tie with the brand and we've seen lots of people who are in the pilot asking oh can I invite my friends to join this is so value additive for me so it does spur more of that organic word of mouth as well that is really interesting so you're you're already creating the community aren't you and then allowing people to interact with each other I mean you're almost talking about a social media site there yeah, it, it has some similarities to it, I suppose. But this one is very uh, intentionally set out to be an exclusively positive forum. <laughs> I think it reminds me of, you know, uh, Saturday you go shopping with your girlfriends, right? Mm. So let's get the girlfriends involved and shop, right? And, and tell me what you think. I love that idea. It's great. And I think that's so key what you were saying, Fiona, in terms of actually customers trust other customers um, more than they trust brands. And we always really see it as like our position is almost to mediate that, just to be there to kind of make the space for that conversation. And actually we're not an active participant in that conversation. We 
we want our customers to find their place and their community and women and customers that are all in it together and actually our voice in that is actually very quite quiet in terms of when it's one to many in terms of channels where we get involved in kind of building those long-term relationships is actually I really like your sort of stylist point but that requires trust actually of your people and not having brand guidelines that choke your staff and that empowerment that comes with that we we talk a lot at Bravissimo about actually that we want all our people to be themselves and we don't give our customer services teams SLAs about ours. We give them SLAs that are about customer compliments and experience level. Like how did your customer feel at the end of that call? Did they feel amazing or was it was it just service level and it was fine? We've had babies named after our sales teams in our shops before. And actually what we often get is people have preferences. They really love Mercy in Oxford Circus because she fits a certain way versus so-and-so. So it does require an element of brand kind of letting go. And I do think that has been a really good positive turn of the last 18 months that we've all had to let go a bit because it's kind of this climate has made sure that we've had to. It creates that inclusivity, I think, that customers are really looking for, right? They're not looking for just a transaction anymore. And they're really looking for inclusivity and and really being able to be transparent and and have a little fun at the same time. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They want to be with a brand that they would be friends with. Like they want to be a brand that has the same values as them and believes in the same things. And why wouldn't they? That's what we all want. Absolutely. And that, that leads into the next question I was going to ask really about what customers actually expect from brands today. I mean, having a strong social conscience would seem to be very important nowadays. Jules, what do you think about these issues? What does Bravissimo stand for? Anyone can buy a sale. That's not difficult to do. Like you can buy a transaction. But actually being a brand that's focused on your long-term customer relationship means that you have to have a purpose and be really true to that purpose. So anyone that knows me, I quote Dolly Parton a lot, probably more than I should, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. And actually, one of the things that Dolly always says is storms make trees take deeper roots. And I really believe that in terms of kind of your approach with your customer and especially marketing eccentricity. We are purpose driven at Bravissimo. We've always been about our shared experience, our power to choose and our emotional connection. And that means being really truthfully there for what our community needs to be there for us and also what they believe in. So we've always had really strong um, sustainability focus. We've recycled for well before I was here 50% of our swimwear range next year will be made from recycled fabrics we're a a brand that's 94% identify as women and we support women within our community but what we have always been in the past is quite kind of shy almost British about it that we don't want to talk about the things that we do because actually you know that's probably not our place to do that what we do realize now is that our customers demand that we actually say what we're doing and be really clear and have intent And also be okay with the fact that you're on a journey to get there too and be really honest and authentic and transparent about that. You don't have to have the end result, but you have to have the commitment that you're getting to the place that's really important for them to be. What about you, Fiona, and Stitch Fix? Does that resonate with your brand values and uh, your opinion about what customers expect from Stitch Fix today? Yeah, consumers in general are are becoming a lot more demanding of the brands that they're buying from. And, um, you know, as Jules was saying earlier, they would prefer to be buying from brands that share values that they hold themselves. And they're looking for brands that have 
a purpose beyond pure profit. And I think at Stitch Fix, our internal culture is something we're very proud of, where we're all very versed in our own sort of internal values. And one of those is integrity. And so last year in 2020, sort of in the wake of the swell of energy around the Black Lives Matter movement, it prompted us to look at ourselves. And we sort of came up short in our own um, sort of estimation in terms of the brands that we were carrying and the representation of the makers. But what we found was that when we wanted to go and bring on more brands that were founded by founders of color or from sort of marginalized segments, there weren't actually as many as we would have liked to have found in the market. And so what we have done in response to that is we have developed a program called Elevate, which just launched onto the market actually about a month ago, which set out with the intention to find really talented, but, um, you know, undiscovered emerging designers and basically cultivate them and give them um, the platform to sell at scale. And I think, you know, we're fortunate to be in a position that we can do that now. You know, 10 years ago, we were just a fledgling startup ourselves, you know, struggling for our own survival. But now that we're established and very sizable, we, we have that scale and ability to affect change for others. And it's been really well received and it's been hugely important to us as a business and also to our employees and obviously to these amazing new um, brands and designers that we're now carrying. And it's something that we plan to continue um, year in and year out going forward. Robin, um, Jules, and I think everybody's mentioned it actually today at some point, we've been talking about sustainability and we're recording this podcast in the week that COP26 starts. Clearly, brands have got to prove that they are serious about sustainability, serious about environmental issues. But my question to you, is that consistent across all age groups or is that more driven by a younger demographic? Yeah, it's really interesting. Historically, it has been the younger generation, right? It's been the Gen Z and a little bit of millennials. But since the pandemic, health and well-being, not just for yourself, but everyone is really something that people have brought to the forefront of their thoughts. And so not only is it important to say, I want to be healthy, I want to be sure that what I'm putting in my mouth is organic. I want to be sure that the cotton that's being sourced is being sourced in the proper way. I want to be sure that the people who are making the clothing are being treated well. We don't really want any repeats of, of horrific things that have happened in the past. And, and so we're seeing that other generations, mine especially, uh, and baby boomers are starting to really think about those things and think about the shift of, should I be buying as many things as I'm buying? And when I buy them, where are they coming from and who's making them? And what are they made from? So this whole idea of sustainability is very important. Fashion has a big challenge. We're like the largest culprit of pollution on the earth behind oil and gas. So it's a big shift. And it means that we have to educate our consumers because our consumers are accustomed to buying things at a lower price because of the way they've been made. And so you know, to really make this shift, it's it's not only the brands and the retailers making the change as to where they're sourcing, but it's also about educating the consumer and being very transparent about where are things coming from, how are they being done, where are they, you know, where is the brand within their goals, how are they reporting, all of those things are are very much top of mind. Every executive I talk to is without a doubt thinking about it. It is a very big challenge and. But lots of brands have really good plans and have a, a way that they're going to get there. So that's it's exciting. It really is. Jules, you were nodding along there. Have you got uh, anything you'd like to add to that? 
Yeah, I totally agree with you, Robin. And I also, I think that your point that it's an all age focus is really important that actually we ran Zoom groups with customers while we were in our first, second lockdown. I don't, one of them, but we did about 15 in total. And actually it was, you would class as kind of more baby boomer demographics that were the ones that were really challenging us on our sustainability. And I think it's quite a challenge. I think, especially as we head into November, November that I'm sure will once again be one of the most fiercely competitive commercial Novembers. Black Friday is now November and pretty much October it feels and actually really kind of staying true to your principles across all the elements of what you do not just with a sustainability committee I think it's really key and going to be quite a challenge I think as we look across the, the retail landscape about being really truthful we talked an awful lot about Black Friday and trading proposition and actually we we made the decision this year that to stay true to our sustainability goals and the goals that we want to make instead, we're actually focusing on bra recycling and asking our customers to recycle and actually swapping it, helping them to swap it for something that's going to last, actually buy one and make it last and bring your old bra in at the same time. So I think absolutely it's not about paying lip service. It's about joining all the dots up because I think customers now see through it. Just to take the, the conversation away from sustainability for a second, Fiona, you've had great experience with Stitch Fix in the US and the UK. You were driving the brand over in the US to start with, and now you're, you're leading the push over here, as it were. How do the strategies differ between the US and the UK? We've got Robin in the US as well. It'd be really interesting to know what, what the differences are between the two markets. Yeah, I think we've had different approaches to growing the businesses that have been born out of the two businesses being born at different times. So the US was launched in February 2011, whereas the UK we launched in May 2019. So, you know, more than an eight-year difference. And in that time, the digital landscape has just changed almost uh, unrecognizably. So, you know, back in 2011, the digital landscape in terms of direct-to-consumer brands online and, you know, social media advertising and digital advertisers was just a lot less crowded and a lot less competitive. So effectively, the US business largely grew organically through word of mouth, supported by a structured referrals program. But also we were able to leverage what were essentially influencers. They just weren't called that for very reasonable prices. So it was at a time when you know celebrities were very happy if they liked the brand to um, post about you on their organic social just for the clothes themselves. Whereas these days, a lot of influencers, you know, won't get out of bed for less than, you know, 10,000 pounds a post. And also influencers themselves, because like every second girl next door is an influencer. So that space in itself is quite crowded. So growing the UK business, we, um, we just had to invest a lot more in paid acquisition efforts from the beginning. And similar to the US, um, when the business launched, it was sort of a category innovator. The concept of personal styling online was novel. And so education was very much paramount to those early marketing messages and gaining that brand awareness and understanding consideration before you can then layer on kind of the more emotive branding approach to marketing. So we've taken quite quite different approaches, um, but I think that's really kind of a reflection of the different times and just how rapidly the digital landscape has evolved. Robin, you've had great experience in working uh, in fashion. Have you noticed any particular differences or similarities between the UK and the US? 
Well, there's a lot of around marketing specifically, right? Because of the fact that the uh, GDPR is, was very much prominent over in Europe and, and UK much quicker. What we found really when it comes to marketing, typically, just as Fiona has mentioned, you know, going out and, and pay-per-click really big and, and very much prominent and something that's done often, especially during the pandemic, there were quite a few brands that had very good luck with that. However, and again, as Fiona mentioned, you know, going to influencers and, and the like don't ne- it doesn't necessarily bring to bear the, the rewards that you're hoping. So really what we're seeing is a, is a lot of upclick on emails, how you, you know, introduce somebody to the brand, what's the cadence that you're emailing somebody, how are you personalizing the experience, and how does that personalization translate to a brick and mortar store? And so really that's important. We find that consumers in the U.S. are, are raising their hands and they, they want personalization. And if they don't get it, they're very quick to unsubscribe and move along. <laughs> so uh, that's something to really think about when you're, you know, when you're thinking about moving a brand one way or the other, right? So there's definitely a difference when it comes to the overall audience, but, you know, getting focused on who that person is and, and really what they want is important. A lot of what we've been talking about today is selling direct to consumer. And that's been, as we said at the top of the show, accelerated by the pandemic. What that enables, obviously, brands to have is first party data. Now, how crucial is that in retaining your customers? I don't know who wants to come in there. Maybe you, Jules, do you want to come in on first party data? Yeah, it's pretty crucial. I mean, if you can't speak to them, you can't really engage with them. Mm. And I think also kind of to Fiona's point earlier about, you know, the digital landscape now is noisy and actually to have an efficient marketing and also be in it for the long term because that is a different game to just being about one-time purchase. It requires a level of segmentation that wouldn't have even been considerable, you know, five years ago. And I imagine what we look at in five years' time, we'll laugh at what we were doing at this point. But first-party data is always super key in that in terms of being able to really, you know, when we when we do a paid social campaign, we're doing seven different variants of the same kind of message based on the demographic, the channel that we're on, but the the message is probably the same. And that kind of intuitiveness and responsiveness is only going to increase, I think, but without the data there to be able to kind of agile and pivot to our earlier point, it's really difficult to do. Fiona, obviously as a D2C brand, you've had this first party data from the get-go. So what has that enabled you to do as a brand? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Citrix is particularly fortunate and lucky in terms of just how much of this data our customers give us, because that style quiz I mentioned takes a good 15 minutes. It's a good cup of tea to fill that in. <laughs> and it and includes really helpful demographic data, such as, you know, are you a parent? How many kids do you have? Like, what do you work part-time, full-time? What industry are you in? And not only does, you know, that kind of information, as well as, you know, other other pieces help us to personalize Um, our emails and so on. We also use AI and little quizzes to collect data about style preferences to make sure that those emails are personalized because the personalized ones are significantly more performant. But also to Jules's point around sort of segmenting the acquisition efforts and thinking about who we target, it's really helpful. So if we have an understanding of our existing customer base and we look at the lifetime value of those different segments and we're able to pinpoint, okay, this particular segment um, has a higher lifetime value. Clearly, this is a service that resonates well with that demographic that we're able to serve well. So let's go and find more people who look like that. And so when we think about our acquisition marketing and how we measure the efficacy of that, it's not just looking at 
the cost for acquisition. We look at the return on advertising spend in terms of the lifetime value of those customers relative to the CPA. And, you know, obviously we, we want to acquire customers that we're going to be able to serve well and surprise and delight rather than customers who will be disappointed and churn out quickly. So we marry the two. Absolutely. We've had the pandemic, as Jewel said, halfway through. We've all had to pivot and now we've got to face the future. So, Jules, what challenges does Bravissimo face in the in the short and long term? And have our shopping habits changed for good now? I mean, there's no going back, is there? I don't think so. I think our shopping habits have changed, but I think therein is some of the challenge that we just don't know what the future holds as it stands at the moment. All that amazing binary modeling and all that kind of customer history data that we had has been really thrown in the last 12 months. But therein, for me, really lies the opportunity too. But the essence of it about communicating with your customer, about being authentic and honest, about holding a community, actually, that still holds really true. It's just about which medium and whether that's in a retail shop or whether that's virtually and whether it's in our US um, part of the business or our UK, they're just things that we can play about with on the outskirts, but the purpose still stays the same and, and so it should. Robin, what other changes do you see generally happening in the retail landscape? If you, if you can gaze into your crystal ball, what do you see in there? Yeah, so I think two things. Well, actually three. So, so I do think brick and mortar stores are not going to go away, but they are definitely going to shift and evolve. Being able to bring a really unique experience to the store is going to be key. It's not going to be about somebody walking in and buying something and leaving because you're not going to get them in the store. So I think retailers kind of need to think about, uh, you know, what do Michelin star chefs do, right? They present a beautiful product and they have a great experience. Same thing. And that's really what retailers are going to have to think about and brands are going to have to think about. I also think personalization is going to be really key. You know, again, customers are not going to have a lot of patience for promotions and things that aren't relevant for them. And then last but not least, you know, the supply chain marketing and customer experience doesn't work without a great supply chain. And so we're really seeing a shift of making sure that the supply chain is really stable products can be seen everywhere and anywhere and that a customer can have a great experience because the product is available and they're not let down if it's not. So those are the things that we're seeing. And a word from you, Fiona, what does the future hold for Stitch Fix? What challenges do you see out there in, in the coming years? So we continue to expand our business offering in a couple of ways. Um, one is we've just recently launched in the US actually a new service feature, which we're calling Stitch Fix Freestyle. And this basically creates a personalized feed of outfits on the website that customers can then shop directly. And the intention of that was to expand our total addressable market because some people love the surprise and delight, the kind of, you know, outsource the shopping. I don't want to think about it. And other people love the hunt. They love the search and they're very, very picky. So that just launched recently. We're hoping to bring that to the UK soon. And then we're also excited about um, eventually expanding into new countries beyond the UK. We came out here with the intention of the UK being our base for further international expansion. And we've already done a lot of research, um, which shows that there would be great appetite for this model elsewhere as well. So there's a, a couple of things I can let you in on uh, that are on the horizon. And what about just, we're talking at a brand level here. What about just on a personal level? How challenging or exciting has it been to work in marketing over the, the last uh, 18 months? Anyone feel free to, to come in on that one? I've loved it. It's been really challenging at times and really hard at times too. But this has been pure growth mindset time, right? Like it has been absolutely the chance for us 
all to kind of get out of our own ways and go back to what's really important and that's our customers um, and engage with them and stay really close to them because we've we've needed to kind of really understand where they are and that's why I love marketing so I actually think it's been the most learning period, the most evolving um, period for all of my team. Um, and I'm really looking forward to what the next 12 months bring. Jules, it's it's interesting because I have the same outlook. It's really exciting to sit with someone like yourself and really hear what, what, what the vision is, where do they want to go? Where does a brand want to go? What do they want to do? And, and start to really think outside the box, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a super exciting time. I love my job and, and, you know, wouldn't trade it for the world. Working with people who, you know, really understand their business and trying to help brainstorm and, and bring ideas to fruition is just, it's just a ball. So I think, you know, the next 12 months is really going to be a lot of fun. So looking yeah. forward to it. I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot more wine consumption, but like True. it's, yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> and Fiona, on a personal level, do you, do you miss the US at all? Are you happy uh, working over in the UK? Oh, I'm, uh, Graham, you can't ask me that kind of question. It's like asking a mom, which is her favorite child. <laughs> um, no, I've, I've loved, uh, I loved all my experiences today. Um, and I think, yeah, similarly to what Jules and Robin had said, I think the last 18 months have been a complete roller coaster. I mean, we we launched our first huge out-of-home marketing campaign a week before lockdown hit in London. And so then all our tube ads were all over the city with no one to see them. Um, but the team that we have here is just incredible. They're, they're so resilient and they're so responsive and they're incredibly creative. And I think what I've witnessed over the last 18 months is that all these unprecedented changes have just catalyzed new levels of creativity. Mm-hmm. And in the process, like everyone has just bandied together in really wonderful ways, actually. So the, the team morale and sort of strength of bonds is, is wonderful. And um, probably it would, wouldn't be as strong as it is kind of, you know, without all having gone through this very strange time together. Jules, has it strengthened the team ethic in your business as well? We are so fortunate to have such an amazing team of people here and really who are all focused on our purpose. We all know why we're here. We're here to make women feel amazing. But what it's enabled everybody is to just be really brave and not worry. That whole kind of progress, not perfect. And it's really just enabled everybody to do that, to not worry about what the perfect version of this looks like because we don't live in that time. And that's enabled people to really just have fun, actually. Um, Have a go, try things, be brave because customer behavior has changed. So it's really kind of just enabled us to do that with amazing results. I mean, we've... We've had more new customers this year than we've ever had before in the 26 years that we've been around. And that wouldn't have happened with an amazing team who were really focused on being there to support our customers. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the times we've been through, we've all been through, we all need a bit of positivity in our lives. And that's that's what's really come across to me today. So thank you all. That was a fascinating conversation. Let me thank you all individually. Jules, thank you so much. Robin and Fiona, it's been a a really illuminating conversation for me. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. And just to finish off, if you'd like some further reading on some of the topics we've covered today, let me point you towards a publication called Direct to Consumer, The Future is Now for Consumer Brands. And that can be found at sap.com forward slash DTC marketing. We always want to hear what you think. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so in all the usual places on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 
The links to these can be found at the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. You can also catch up with all our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive review and rating. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thank you to my guests. Thanks for listening and goodbye.